Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to You're Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host, book inspector and slow, slow reader. I'm in my 12th week of reading Anna Karenina and Levin is still in a field with a scythe. My brand new book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline and it's available online and from bookshops across the UK at the moment. Now to this week's guest, the writer and broadcaster, Christina Patterson. Christina has one of the most impressive and fascinating career trajectories of anyone I know. The former director of the Poetry Society, she left the organisation to become a lead interviewer and columnist at The Independent. Christina was, among other fabulous subjects, the first person to interview Gordon Brown after he left office. However, I fell in love with her work a little later, in 2018, when I discovered her brilliant memoir, The Art of Not Falling Apart, a tender, gorgeously written, sparky and furious story about losing her job at The Independent and how she lost and found her identity afterwards. Christina has known triumph and tragedy and writes about both in a way that is deeply compassionate, shockingly honest and always funny. She is the embodiment of E.M. Forster's maxim, Only Connect. She's also my favourite sort of person, the kind that is absolutely addicted to books. We rummaged around her many shelves and talked about death, sex and poets making passes at Ted Hughes and taxis. Uh, so we are here in Christina's study. Um, now we've seen a lot of books on your book and we've seen some really vast collections, but I think you might have, you've got nearly as many books as um, Andy Miller. Oh, <laughs> really? Listed, which is I listened to A his. lot of books. So are all these books that you uh, have been sent to review or are some of these books you, you have for fun? Uh, oh, no, some of them are for fun. I have reviewed quite a lot of them over the years and some in this pile I've been sent to review. But I usually, uh, unless if I don't read them fairly swiftly and I very often don't have time to read them if I'm not actually um, reviewing them for uh as I mostly read for the Sunday Times, then I probably won't keep it because, as you see, I'm a bit low on bookshelf space now. Uh, I've just seen you've got Nick Hornby, How to Be Good. Oh, yes. Um, would you say that you are a a good reader? and Are you a respecter of books or are you a spine shatterer? No, I generally have to read a book with a pen in hand. I have to, partly because so many of the books I read, I review. But even if I'm not reviewing it, I like to remember stuff. So... I generally scroll all over books. I've probably got hundreds of first editions that would have been worth a quite a lot if I hadn't wrecked them <laughs> by scrolling all over them. I don't know if I've scrolled on that one. It's possible I haven't. Oh, so this is a hard bet, so I'm guessing it's a first. Like, yeah, it probably is. So this is what a book looks like if I'm... And half the time I, I can't read my I notes. I can't read so. your writing, so I can't, all of I your can't secrets read my about writing. this <laughs> book, shall not name... <laughs> Because you've got a really interesting relationship with books, I think, because you worked in publishing for a long time and you know, you're know you a current affairs journalist and a, a book reviewer. When did you start reading? Were you always enthusiastic? Mm, I've always, it? always read. And I don't think you'll meet many journalists or writers who haven't been, I'm sure, obsessive readers. So... I, mean, I loved Enid Blyton as a child. I was mad about Enid Blyton. Used to dream of being sent off to boarding school and having midnight feasts in the dorm. And when on my first day at my secondary school, uh, I was so excited about having to wear a uniform. And my best friend and I both bought the 
optional hat. And of course, we found we were then the only idiots in the whole school. So that was discarded after about two days. And that was pure Mallory Towers and Enid Blyton. So, yes, I was a a complete obsessive reader as a child. And I remember once sitting in um, my parents converted the loft into a a spare room. I remember sitting there once reading an Iris Murdoch. I was probably a teenager having a piece of cake and uh, a cup of coffee or tea. And I remember actually crying because I was so happy. (laughs) That hasn't changed in all these years. For me, my idea of heaven is uh, reading an absorbing book um, with a piece of cake and a cup of tea or a glass of wine and a bowl of kettle chips. There is literally nothing I like doing more. That sounds like heaven. That was the motif I loved so much in your memoir. And there's so much to love in your memoir. It's excellent. But the recurring, pretty much everything is a bit better if you've got a bowl of crisps, kettle chips for preference. Well, it is. I just think it is. Uh, Or cake, uh, but uh, in particular, uh, crisps. There is something particularly special about crisps, but we're meant to be talking about books, not crisps. I won't won't go on about them at great length. That's another. We should pitch that podcast, though, the crisp podcast. (laughs) Um, One thing I like to ask people is, are there any books that you have strong memories of reading while knowing that possibly you shouldn't have been reading them? And there might be either a parent or librarian who would take it off your hands. Uh, yes. Well, in my parents' downstairs loo, there was a shelf. And on that shelf, there was a book called Lady Chatterley's Lover. And I don't remember how old I was, but I do remember picking it up and flicking through it and being utterly transfixed. And I don't think I have a copy, actually. So I haven't got some Lawrence here. Have I got it? Um, do you know what? It doesn't look as though... Oh, I have got it there, but ah, I haven't read that edition. Yeah, there as well. I think um, Penguins too. Ah, oh, that's the one. That's the one I read as a child. Then. Oh, wow! And that's uh, the one that was in the Barbican. That I... would be the one that was in the um, in the downstairs loo. And I remember the kind of incredible goose flesh when I got. I didn't read the whole thing, obviously. I just flicked through it and then found the sea that various scenes were. And I remember there being. I think I remember there being flowers in his pubic oh, the, hair the, the strewing and, the stru- <laughs> and, uh, and it gave me a very sort of unexpected image of sex so um so was this sort of before you were a teenager yes or? oh god yes I must have been eight or nine or something and and being kind of utterly electrified and sort of not not sure whether to be disgusted or 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 you know kind of well, you know, find pleasure in it. But certainly it felt illicit. And um, as we all know, there's nothing like illicit pleasure. There's something, I think, really, really powerful, isn't there, about those early things where maybe 80% of it sort of goes over your head, but you know it's the power of allusion to something and, you know, that's sort of what's being omitted. And mm. God, there are so many things as well where what was happening or what I was imagining was actually probably a lot wilder and weirder than what was actually being described because I was just, I had no idea. So I thought, yes, exactly. I'm trying to find the, the part. Would you, um, if I can, would you would you read it out or would you prefer? <laughs> I don't know if I can find it. It's literally it's not falling so open to that page. <laughs> no, that's weird, isn't it? Um, still, she thought the most beautiful part of her was the long sloping fall of the haunches from the socket of the back and the slumberous round stillness of the buttocks. Like hillocks of sand, the Arabs say, soft and downward slipping with a long slope. Here the life still lingered hoping, but here too she was thinner and going unripe, astringent. But the front of her body made her miserable. It was already beginning to slacken with a slack sort of thinness, almost withered, going old before it had ever really lived. She thought of the child she might somehow bear. Was she fit anyhow? I don't know if she was in her thirties or what when she, <laughs> when she had, was worrying about her body. I mean, I sound withering. a bit glib, but you know, I think about all of the way I think about my body and how it makes me you know, grumpy and miserable and the the body confidence issues I have, and I think a lot of us have. Well, that sort of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? I think if we could see ourselves as D. H. Lawrence saw women, we might be a bit kinder. Do you know, 27, she says, she was old, old at 27, with no gleam and sparkle in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> My God, 27 probably seemed incredibly old when I was reading it. But well, it I was reading an, an old Dilly Cooper and there's a, a rugged romantic hero. Um, I think this is in Imogen. And 
he's unlikely because, you know, he's he's quite old. He's quite a bit older than the heroine. And he's, you know, would he, could he love again because he's already had a bit of a life and he's been around? He's 32. Mm. Oh, it's just incredible. I've just seen the book that... Well, oh, I'm so glad book, that you're pointing to Barbara book. Trapido because I love her. Oh, I was working in a bookshop when I'd finished my MA. I did an MA in the novel and um, my father said... I'd gone back to the family home. My father said, so when are you going to get a job then? So I walked up and down Guildford High Street with my CV and came home and said, I've got a job, Dad. Um, I'm working in Penguin Bookshop. And I think he thought, well, not really that kind of, wouldn't really mean that kind of a job. But anyway, I worked there for a few months. Oh, that was and, a Penguin um, Bookshop. Yes, I loved... The, the publisher had a bookshop. Yes, they did. I didn't they know that. did. And I, it was one of my favourite jobs ever, actually, because having done an MA which was full of Bart and Derrida and um, post modernism and all this stuff which having done kind of Sagawain and the Green Knight for my English literature degree at Durham it was a bit of a shock to be suddenly talking about privileging this over that in you know kind of jargon written prose but I was did have you know Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter and Lorna Sage so there were some great people teaching and um but wow. I know it was amazing but um but I I remember sitting around doing my sort of reading I don't know ploughing through Middlemarch or or Tristram Shandy which by the way is one of my favourite books and also thinking oh I'm feeling a bit hard done by being essentially paid by the taxpayer to sit around and read fiction <laughs> and and so it was a relief to actually work in a, a shop where you were lugging the things around instead of deconstructing them and one of the members of staff at the bookshop took me literally by the hand to a bookshelf and said I think you'll like this book and she took out Barbara Trapido's Brother of the More Famous Jack and I absolutely fell in love with it. I've read it so many times. It's kind of my comfort book. And um, I remember in just six weeks after I arrived at The Independent, where I became deputy literary editor after I'd been running the Poetry Society, I was asked to apply for the job there. Quite a big deal to give it up. But I thought if I ever want to be a journalist, this is my chance. So I went to the Indy. Six weeks after I arrived there, I found I had a lump in my breast, which obviously was not ideal. And I then had to go and have it cut out. And a few days after I came out of hospital, I was booked to interview Barbara Trapido. And so it was a very, very emotional time for me. And um, I went and I interviewed her and she was absolutely lovely. I think she's a wonderful writer. Oh, how lovely. <gasps> oh, my so, goodness. Um, that's funny. That's um, I just found a, a, an email in, a printed out email in this book. Is there anything that you can share in the email? If you totally understand, you'd rather keep it private. But I'm a super fan of Barbara Trapido and she's been a... A writer I've returned to many times during them. So she says, um, I've actually at last managed to take my draft novel out of its box where it's been lying for 18 months and start polishing it to final draft. Blah, blah, blah. So she's talking about her latest book. Where did you interview her? I think I interviewed her in a cafe, actually, because because I was not at all well and I just was literally a few days out of hospital. I think I might even have had still had um, drips, a drip for you know, blood and stuff in my pocket. I was very frail. So actually, retrospectively, it was completely crazy to do it. This edition of Brother of the Morphine Jack, may I? Cause yes, it's quite, yes. This looks so loved and so right. I've never seen this cover before. It's beautiful. It's kind of a, a tapestry yes. effect, I think. God, that is the most glamorous author picture on the front. It's gorgeous. It's got this really kind of... Do you think that was maybe taken in the 60s or 70s? It's got a real... Um, who's that? You know who I mean. Francis. It's a French yes. singer. Yeah. Um, Francois Hardy. Francois yes, Hardy. Thank yes, you, Dale. Yes. Thank you, Dale. 1982, this was. So I imagine it was um, around then, actually, or late 70s. God, I don't even recognise. I've got my name in it. I don't even recognise my handwriting. It is. It bears no resemblance to the scroll. That's an now. interesting habit, because I don't think I've ever done that, putting my name in a book. I when that kind years. of fell out. Was that, do you think, from when books were more... Pre- it's terrible, isn't it? When you get sent a lot of books, yeah. you get quite cavalier yeah. about lending them. And when you know you're, you have more than you will ever possibly read. Yes. Um, but, but whether still, it was from a time when when we all had less money and books seemed more expensive, yes, I, think and probably, I want to make I think sure that's probably right. But I still obsessively buy books. I buy books all the time instead of reading them. I, I have this sort of tremendous hunger. I, when I go into a bookshop, I feel kind of sick, sick with envy at all the fantastic books that other people have written that I haven't written. And then sick that I'm never going to have the time to read them all. And kind of also joyous because it's like being in the biggest cake shop in the mm. whole world. It's a very funny mix of feelings. I'm so glad it's not just me. Have you all? I feel that much more acutely 
as someone who writes books now, there's a real, sometimes I go in and think, oh no, like I just want there to be one time, just one time I want to go in and there's only books by me. I know. <laughs> Which is obviously <laughs> dreadful and feeling, I think, wholeheartedly positive about the experience before. Oh, absolutely. Well, normally I just, uh, you know, kind of consumed by envy, but as it happens, my books just come out in paper and it's and it's kind of I found it in a pile on a WH Smith travel which, is which was an incredible thrill uh, I mean I don't I think it's a temporary promotion but it was still an incredible thrill because usually it's kind of tucked away in some hidden corner you I know. Saw there a picture on your Instagram but it was prominently displayed yes because um, yes. I did you know I, and you said um when we talked before about having more books than you'll ever possibly read, being mm. obviously sent so many books because I suppose people are hoping that you'll review them. Mm. And also it sounds like, just because I do it, I, you know, buy books, I don't get around to reading immediately. What's the oldest book you think you have that you've bought and not read? Oh my goodness. Where would I start on that? I did finally read War and Peace. That was, um, oh. I, I went, um, I hadn't read that for many, many years. And then I had a week in... Funny enough, Barbara Trapedo refers to it in um, in her email. I had a week when I wasn't very well some years ago. I had a week in Sharm El Sheikh, and I took there was a new translation of War and Peace, and I took that with me and was absolutely enchanted and riveted by it. I've definitely, to my shame, never read Joyce's Finnegan Wake, but I'm not Finnegan's Wake, but I'm not even sure I've got it actually. Was it what prompted you to read War and Peace? I've never read it, and I feel ashamed of that, but. It Shame. is. It's possibly the <laughs> ultimate book that everybody believes they're going to get round to. Yes. A bit like I think it's almost like writing a book, isn't it? You just, I just need that, you know, perfect sort of free six yes. month period that yes. never actually yes. turns up. And was it that the fear of not well, ever think, getting around to it is greater um, than? Well, I was in a very bad way actually. I was very unwell, and I, I was in a lot of pain, and I was kind of desperate because I couldn't get better. And I don't know whether I think that book had arrived that translation had arrived in the office and I think I just thought okay um I have some time now why not read it and I read it you know in a week and I remember again sitting by a pool with some chocolate cake and coffee there's a bit of a continuing theme here (laughs) and uh, just utterly immersed in the world and thinking this is just an extraordinary book I did also feel that about Anna Karenina which I read many years before and um and my and it, that was my father's favorite book actually Anna Karenina somebody who I've discovered in recent years I've just seen her book who I absolutely love is Elizabeth Strout I don't know if you've read her but she is an amazing writer you just read her and think this is what life is like and and her books to my joy are getting shorter because I do think as I get older and life gets shorter that there's a lot to be said for brevity so um the last one I read of hers is anything is possible which is um wonderfully short and that's also a amazing is that a proof that's, that's is a that... proof yeah she wrote my name is Lucy Barton yes and, um, that's that and the really and Olive Kitteridge uh, Kitteridge you do write so much about current affairs and the world around us mm. and you know we're talking before as well when you have to read for information and research you do have less time to read for pleasure mm. do you like books that reflect your world or books that take you away from it or do you think it's important to have a combination of the two I don't weirdly I don't really read escapers obviously fiction is in a sense escapism but I've never been um a fan of crime fiction when I was a teenager I loved Mary Stewart I suppose you call them romantic thrillers now I don't really want to read I'm not really interested in genre writing I suppose partly having had cancer twice I do feel intensely aware that life is very short and I'm not a particularly fast reader unfortunately which you know you'd have thought seeing all these books I I was but I'm not these books have absorbed a lot of my life and when I'm reviewing a book I'm quite slow and and also when I'm obviously reading mostly I review non-fiction these days and I'm not really reading them for information I'm reading them for the kind of you know to see how good the book is and, and learn in the process so I love to read a really good novel but I want that novel to feel like this is what life is so one novel I absolutely loved which I did review actually it's called All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Toys and it's funny and sad and really really beautiful I've just started reading Jonathan Coe's Middle England which I'm hugely enjoying and I think it's a a kind of um, I haven't got very far with it but utterly absorbing and and 
illustrate a, a dramatization of what feels like the key moment of our lifetimes, which is Brexit. So I do like fiction to illuminate and feel truthful. For me, it's all back to Keats, beauty and truth. Mm. That's that's what it comes down to, really. I want everything to be about beauty and truth. I love Jonathan Coe and I love his... Um, I love him as sort of as a satirist and his sort of, you know, very wicked, very observant eye. But the novel that I think I love the most is The House of Sleep, which yeah. I think of all the, you know, because he's so good at writing about time and place. Mm. And in some ways, I think that is the least connected with time and place. But mm. I think I love the very different descriptions of humanity. I thought there was yes. just so much nuance in those. Yes relationships and in some ways that seemed like the most real to me because it's very much about people I, do, I mean I think all novels are ultimately about desire not necessarily mm. sexual romantic desire but it's about what we want and how we're defined yes. by what we want and how we I think come adrift when we forget what we want or yes. we don't know it or yes. we think we want something we want something else yes. and that's what I really loved about that book that's very interesting. I, I think you're probably right. I mean, I think probably my favourite is What a Carb Up, is it, it, just because it's so funny. But it's a long time since oh, I that is read that. Really magnificent comic writing. I also think that comic writing is often undervalued, actually, and it's one of the hardest things to do. Oh, gosh, entirely. I'm always, always banging on about this, that I think that so much writing is dismissed because it's easy to read yes. when the easier something is to read the harder it is to write absolutely right absolutely right it's incredibly hard to i mean i find i sp- war and peace I that was easy to I write i just knocked it off <laughs> I, I speak quite polysyllabically but i try very hard in my writing to take out the long words which is quite time consuming and you know you want your writing to be a quick read and that one of the things i love about elizabeth strout is that her her writing is very plain sort of you know cut back unvarnished I don't think everybody has to write like Raymond Carver but um but you're absolutely right I think deceptive simplicity really is what Mm. it's about and 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 so is um writing in an entertaining way it's incredibly hard to Mm. do and comedy is very hard to do and And never have we needed satire more really yes and it's the rhythm and the musicality that makes something funny so often isn't it I think that's the writing more than any other way you have to hear it yes exactly as, as you read it exactly yeah um, yeah. Let's go over here because I because you mentioned um, Iris Murdoch. Oh yes, a happy reading memory. Like some beautiful old masses of Iris just moved day. I think I did my dissertation on Iris Murdoch. Oh, actually. can you remember what it's called? Um, I think it was called something like a lucky dip of meanings. Ooh. Something and something in Iris Murdoch's nose. <laughs> <laughs> some pretentious sub- subtitle. It sounds like you were reading her early. Was that all? Was she a yeah, a writing sort of. Uh, I, I think I stumbled upon her as a teenager, actually, and I really loved her then. I don't know what I would make of her now. I suspect I might find her a bit mannered now, and all those sort of, um, you know, you kind of need endless Venn diagrams for all the relationships. I, I don't know how I'd feel about that now, but I do remember one. I think in one of her, I'm trying to think which one it was. She said, "Anyone can fall in love with anyone," which I thought was such a true thing. Mm to say and might have been in the sacred and profane love machine i haven't read her for for so long have you read her recently not recently and i think i only read i think i read the sea the sea in my teens and it all went over my head and there was that i mean in a way i think the pretentiousness of your not your teenage years being (laughs) pretentiousness of one's teenage years is a brilliant brilliant thing because it's a time when you do feel like adrian mole and you are imagining the person you'd be and building yourself through books and there are things like you know we saw I was thinking about what you were saying about the shortness of life and perhaps with certain books like War and Peace there are books that you're either going to read when mortality hits you and you suddenly become aware Mm. that you're human and you are going to die Mm. I'm 33 and I don't actually believe I'm going to die I Mm. think they will have invented something by Mm. the time it it comes to me Mm. on a not if you were called Jesus I'd be quite nervous because it's my birthday soon and we've just had Christmas my my time was running out but I do think that I know about death like intellectually but not yet really. I think that's coming for me and I think I'm a late developer in that respect. No, I think I think none of us really thinks we're going to die. And I think, I mean, I was 36 when I, no, I was 39 when I got cancer for the first time. And then I thought, oh God, you know, I, I, I might die. And that was a terrible shock. And obviously we all know we're going to die. And then uh, I got it again when I was 46, I think. 
but I don't really believe it now. I sort of do and I sort of don't. But but I must say death is sort of featuring more. Uh, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but obviously as you get older, you know more people who do die. You've and written about this beautifully. And I, I'm not just saying this because you're here. I absolutely would recommend that everybody listening read your book and how you've written about it. But the only way I can put it is fucking hell. You know, twice to go through everything that you have to go through physically and emotionally and then to have that happen again. I mean, were you, you angry? Uh, yeah, sure. But, um, well, I, I don't know that I was angry. I I just felt cheated, actually. And the honest truth is that and this is sad, and this is, as you know, one of the themes in my book, in a way, was that I did think, oh, my God, if I die now, my life will have been a failure, which now seems like an incredibly harsh assessment of a life. But it was genuinely what I thought at the time. I had just been dumped by someone I was in love with. And I thought, I'm not married. I don't have a family. Um, the expectation in my family was always that you would have do that conventional stuff. I didn't do it. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go. And and also I, I the thought of having to go through what I was told I would have to go through, mastectomy and chemo and all the rest of it. I just thought, you know what, I just can't effing do this. Um, you you and, can swear, by yeah. the way. <laughs> well, I do all the time, but you never know. <laughs> but um, and luckily, in the end, I didn't need chemo. And I did have to have a mastectomy, which I was absolutely dreading. I would lie awake at night and I would Google pictures of mastectomies and just feel completely sick. But um, in fact, and it was horrible, but I had a fantastic surgeon. He did a brilliant job of reconstructing at the same time and it was all fine. So what is amazing, I suppose I've, I've never had a baby, but I suppose it's like childbirth that women say you forget the pain of childbirth. And it now feels a long time ago. And I'm not really I know some people do like to think of themselves as, you know, a survivor of cancer and go to cancer support groups and things like that. And I absolutely respect anybody's right to respond to these things any way they like. But I didn't want to talk to anyone else who'd had cancer. I didn't really want to meet anyone who had cancer. I didn't want to go to any support groups. And un unless it kind of comes up in conversation, I'm not particularly interested in it because I've been there. I've done that. It was horrible. And let's get on with life, really. I imagine you there you know there's nothing new that you can learn about it or about you you don't need anybody else's experiences alongside your own and i mm. i think it's fine to feel that way and something i really really adore about reading especially now and something i'm trying to cherish is i've been struggling especially at the moment with with social media and it sounds awful doesn't it because i feel like as humans we should be open and we should be interactive we should want to have conversations but the the spaces where that was happening, they're not really the right place for that anymore. Mm -hmm. And the heaven of a book is reading about either a real experience or an imagined experience that sounds so real and you can take what you need to and be nourished by that, yes. but you don't have to kind of go in and parcel it back to them. You don't yes. have someone else coming and parceling your own experience yes. and serving it back to you. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, all this kind of let's, you know, let's open up the conversation. It's like, let's not, let's not. I, I really don't want any more conversations. Um, I want to, I'm sorry, but I want to hear from people whose opinions I respect. And I'm afraid, I'm at a point now, I think human beings have always, we can all learn from other human beings in all kinds of ways. But I'm not going to learn about the nuances of Brexit. I might know someone's opinion about Brexit, but I'm not going to learn about the likelihood economic implications of Brexit from someone who hasn't done, uh, you know, hasn't sort of taken a lot of time to invest in the issues and, you know, read a lot about it. I feel like I could now do a PhD about it, but alas, nobody's paying me to do that. <laughs> and Listen, similarly... If anybody would like to fund I think this is truly what, what we need to move forward. And, and similarly, to go back to your point about do I feel I've got anything to learn about cancer? I feel I've got um, something to learn from anyone who has thought about something a lot and can express it beautifully. So I will happily read a book about someone going through breast cancer or prostate cancer or arthritis or whatever else they have been through. If they do it beautifully, I will also happily read, I don't particularly, but I would happily read 
a crime novel if it was beautifully done. I loved, for example, watching The Killing. I've, mm. I don't really watch, I watch very little TV, but on various holidays I've taken box sets of things like The Killing and thought it was pretty much a masterpiece. I think you can talk or write about anything if you do it well and for me that's kind of the only rule really yeah and that's why I get quite impatient of all this you can't see this you can't see that I kind of think I understand of course that there are legal barriers you can't step over and you know hate crime and so on and in fact this week somebody has been held in custody because of their communication towards me and has been charged for malicious communication because he did cross a line but um and we have to respect that but in terms of you might offend so and so we're fine to offend people. That is fine. It's called free speech. And I don't think there's anything you can't write about as long as you do it brilliantly. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We'll be back to Christina soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book I loved so much that I should have paid for it with golden rubies instead of a Visa debit card. This week it's The Art of Being a Woman by Patricia Volk, published by Random House in 2013. This is a memoir about fashion and family. In the mid-50s, Volk found her mother's copy of Shocking Life, the autobiography of the radical fashion designer Elsa Schiaparelli, and it changed her understanding of womanhood and style forever. This is a beautiful book about celebrating, rule-breaking and challenging the establishment. The writing really is as elegant as the clothes Volk is describing. If, like me, you're a Mad Men fanatic and you're fascinated with stories of life in mid-century Manhattan, I promise you'll adore this. That's The Art of Being a Woman by Patricia Volk, published by Random House and out now. Now back to Christina. Who are your favourite writers on bodies? And as mm. someone who I'm assuming having had cancer, you've got a very, your relationship with your body, I think has probably kind of evolved and, mm, and changed true. over yes. time. Yes, who, it has. Who do you think kind of captures what it is to have a body? That's such an interesting question, goodness. Funnily enough, I've, I've got an essay in a book that's come out called Under the Skin, which is about the organs of the body. And my, my essay is about... Um, the skin but I've only just started reading it so I read a couple of them and they're really good one by A.L. Kennedy and one by oh, Naomi Alderman Al Kennedy. The Little yeah. Snake was one of my favourite books last Which year Which one? The Little Snake I haven't read that but I have read a fair bit of A.L. Kennedy Gosh that's such an recommend question. and it's short Right oh, that's always that's always great um, <laughs> Literally short So oh, actually Doris, so Doris Lessing mm. I'm just thinking of Doris Lessing and um, Oh because I was going to ask uh, the you The Golden Notebook actually Doris Lessing That was I remember reading that as a as a teenager mm. and I remember her talking I think I remember her talking about periods and being kind of shocked and also sort of delighted I remember the embarrassment of having periods on holiday and you know what did you do if you got you know a stain on a skirt and your dad was there and all of that stuff so I, I think um, Doris Lessing writes very powerfully about what it is to be sexual and to be a woman because mm. I really I loved Martha Question I think mm. that's one of the first books I read with a 
female protagonist mm. who wasn't always sympathetic or rather she seemed much more authentic because she could be a real dick and yes. she was selfish and cruel and thoughtless and that seemed kind of quietly revolutionary yes. in a way yes i think that might have been martha quest i think that might have been the first story celeste thing i read i interviewed her when she was 80 and um went to the loo in her house and she had a chinese dictionary on she was learning chinese at 80 can you imagine Oh, no, that's what you do when you think you're going to die, isn't it? Because yeah. that's what I was going to say before, whether you either, the books you own, you can only read when you're at a certain point in youth or a mm. certain point in ageing. Mm. And it's the middle bit where you're kind of, possibly you're most insecure and when you also think you have the most time to improve, where, mm. you know, you think one day I will, I'll read Tolstoy and I'll learn Chinese. And then when you have either a notion of yourself as someone who reads Tol- Tolstoy and knows Chinese or a notion that, you've only got another few years to do so. That's when that happens. Well, I'm never going to learn Chinese. I'm telling you that for nothing. Mm-hmm. But but I wouldn't like to get my Italian back, which used to be quite good and is now absolutely awful. But oh, um, but does yeah. it come back when you're there? Um, a bit. But in fact, I just started doing Duolingo a bit. I was just going to ask um, you if you had Duolingo. I, I haven't been using it nearly enough. And I did and learn... Do you have the completely mad sentences where you're translating things that, <laughs> I bet you say that to all the boys. <laughs> and I've got a massive aubergine. I got... I got I, last night, actually, I was really, really tired. And I've got a book to review. And... Um, and I got, I keep, obviously, every day get these things saying, it's time for your lesson. I've only registered for five minutes and I still managed to not do it most days. But then I've only been trying for about 10 days. But um, but I did quite enjoy it, A, because I used to be very good at challenges. I'm at the level where I started from scratch, so it's quite easy. But also some of the sentences did make, I can't remember now, but, you know, the horses have a marrow or something, you know, something quite weird. And I, I I'm sure in the that. French one I had a man saying, will you hold my snake? <laughs> <laughs> Um, who is there anyone who you would love to interview? I lo- I loved I know Kazuo Ishiguro a tiny bit. I I actually knew him oh, when wow. I worked at Faber many years ago, oh, and I I'm interviewed so him quite early on when I was at the NG. He and in fact my mother taught his sister at um, primary school, um, and she used to bump into Mrs Ishiguro on Guildford High Street. Um, he is he is. Both a wonderful writer I and a really used to lovely man. Go into the Penguin Bookshop and do kind of cover face outs and things and make sure that his books are on the main tables. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. Very modest Japanese woman. I doubt very much she would have done that. Let's see who else. Um, John Burnside, I think, is a wonderful writer. I interviewed him many years ago. In fact, I chaired a thing with him at the British Library oh, a year I don't or two know ago. John oh, he's a fantastic writer. He's a brilliant poet. He's very unusually versatile and prolific. He's a brilliant poet, brilliant novelist, and brilliant memoirist. Really, really, really good. I hate him already. I know, I know, absolutely. <laughs> what are his novels um, about? They are... Okay, um, the Summer of Drowning, The Mercy Boys, and The Locust Room, and is that him as well? Burning Elvis. Nature is a very big theme, and doubles are a big theme, and... Goodness, they're very difficult to sum up. They're very difficult. They're very, very difficult to describe. I'm really stumbling here, but I think he's an amazing writer. He writes a lot about... There are lots of undercurrents of violence, actually, in his work. So he's great. It's funny, isn't it? Because I do find you can have a, you know, hypothetically, I don't know, a a Dan Brown or a a Jack Reachery book, and if someone said, what's it about? And you're like, well, you know, they're in this building, and this person comes along, and this explodes. And actually... Some of the novels I've really, really loved that have made the biggest impact on me. Someone says, what's it about? I know, you can't. I have no oh, idea. No. I know, but it's funny you mentioned Jack Reacher because I don't read thrillers at all, but I was asked to do an event at a crime festival with Lee Child. Oh, and um, wow. I remember sitting in a friend's kitchen and feeling almost crying because I thought, how am I going to do this thing when it's going to be full of 500 Lee Child fans? I've never read a Lee Child book in my life and I've never read any other um, thrillers either. So I did read, obviously read some, and I thought they were really good. He was, and it was fa- fascinating conversation. So I really enjoyed that. Do you have any favourite love stories, or not necessarily romantic novels, but those two, but romances in books that have stayed in your head as either inspiring stories or cautionary tales, or a bit of both? Oh goodness! Um, not this is possibly not the most straightforward jumping off point, but I found um, with a bit. Candace Bushnell, oh, who yes. I'm a huge fan of. And Me I too. do think her writing does not get the respect I it agree. deserves. But she is, you know, writing, I think, in a very smart and anthropological way Absolutely. about loving relationships. Absolutely. Well, I loved, um, I was mad about the series. Uh, it felt like 
you know, I mean, I felt like I was living the unglamorous version of it at the time that it was on. And um, and I think she is a very good writer. I interviewed her, actually, and she's one of the few writers I found quite disappointing. I didn't like her at all. And also, interestingly, I think her earlier novels or short stories I think um, Sex and the City is kind of linked to short stories mm. do have a slightly kind of um, razor-like uh, almost Jane Austen-like sort of forensic mm. sense but There's um, a real kind of I think darkness and bleakness to them that I really enjoyed I loved the series too I've gone through many sort of you know loving and hating and then loving of it but um, and it was I think necessary for it to seem sort of super glossy and super aspiration yes. that's how they, they sold it but yes. there's a real dark heart in those yes. stories and she's actually very good on relationships and very good on sex she's she's uh, yeah I, I think I mean this is not what one would expect it's not how you would expect to answer your question <laughs> but and it, I wouldn't say that I was haunted by the love stories in them but I do think she she writes or can write very truthfully mm. about the realities of um, well, rom- sex and romance it's unusual to have that honesty because I think that often in quite a lot of not it's like you know with films isn't it the love story is a sort of a a secondary thing that gets you know thrown in and then mm. if the novel is about a relationship it's dismissed as being you know especially with commercial women's fiction and actually that's i think one of the most universal things mm. is who we are in and out of Absolutely. relationships because Absolutely. they're the one thing we, we have i think far less control there than we do say sort of our jobs and and where we live and Absolutely. Love and death, it's kind of it really, isn't it? But what, can I ask why she was disappointing? When was the interview? Oh, was it, I think it was around something like 2008 or nine. So that, has, has it just finished? Or, so presumably the, the show was at the peak yes, of it. Yes, she had a new novel out, which I think was One Fifth Avenue, which was, and what was not, and it was sort of full of um, very, very rich people living at One Fifth Avenue, which is, um, you know, the kind of one of the like, smartest like, buildings in one high exactly, exactly. Like Manhattan. And I suppose what Manhattan. I felt was it felt as though I kind of assumed it was satire. And then I mm. and then I realised I wasn't quite sure that it was satire, that there was a sort of slight aspirational uh, sense of sort of yearning for that lifestyle. And I felt as though she'd perhaps been sucked into the whole thing. Mm. She She told me off for... She, you know, I sort of mentioned I was single and she kind of wagged her finger at me and said, um, you're waiting, you know, if you're waiting for someone to bring home the bacon. And I thought, well, I'm not <laughs> waiting for anyone to bring home the bacon. I found her quite stern and she insisted on bringing her own hair and makeup person to the, so, interview. To the interview. Yeah. For the photograph. Uh, so, yeah, no, I know. I, I wish we could do that when we're in... Um certain publications that shall remain nameless and being wedged into unused heels with our Shirley Temple cars. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yes. I guess even though you met her and you were there, and I, I want to defend her because I've, I've loved her work so much, but also you think, well, probably couldn't produce what she has produced and be in that position without a certain, I don't know, maybe like a, a brittle quality of feeling as mm. though people kind of expect things from you. I'm interested in how writing and being published, it seems like the most public and the most private thing you can do mm. at the same time. So I think a lot of writers genuinely, their way of being out in the in the um, public arena was really things like literary festivals, going to mm. Hay on Y, doing interviews. When I started, I worked at the South Bank Centre on the Literature Programme from 1990 to 1998 and um, it wasn't a big thing then doing public literary events. That was the first literary programme in London. It was the biggest in the country. There were a few literary festivals, but not masses. There's a whole proliferation now. And lots of people found it, um, you know, quite challenging to be out and back. I did meet some amazing people, Umberto Eco and Octavia Paz and oh, wow. Derek Walcott and, you know, all kinds of people. But I think the one who remains for me the most impressive although sadly he's no longer with us is Seamus Heaney I mean he was even before he won the Nobel Prize he was a kind of megastar and whenever he did events there would be you know kind of hundreds of people queuing up all claiming to be his second cousin and he was (laughs) unfailingly polite and lovely to all of them he was obviously a fantastic writer but a really phenomenal human being and I think one of the others as I I mentioned earlier is Kazuo Ishiguru he is as far as I can tell, unfailingly courteous and polite. I, I'm sure he doesn't do social media. He just 
is a thoroughly decent, nice person who also happens to be a Nobel Prize winning wonderful writer. And I'll tell you an example of one who isn't. I just recently reviewed the Hemingway biography. And I I mean, it's hard to imagine. I I think uh, The Old Man in the Sea, for example, is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the English language. The guy was an absolute shit. I mean, I had no idea what a shit he was, but a complete compulsive liar, uh, not just philanderer, but deeply, maliciously cruel to almost everyone he came in contact with, made things up, self-aggrandizing. And it raises the ever pertinent issue of how you can be an amazing artist and a truly terrible human Mm. being. Did you read, as a writer called, I'm going to say her name wrong, Claire Derrida? Derrida? Um, I think she wrote this for the Paris Review, and it was oh. about that, about this, you know, more, I think she was talking specifically about um, Roman Polanski, but being a oh, right, yes. huge, huge, huge fan of these men who have now, you know, it's come to our attention, they're mm. problematic. But what it's yeah. like when you're, you have sort of based your teenage self around your passion for this yeah. work. Yeah. And how that does really seem to really, really happen to, to men so much that when you're a man, everyone is in a great hurry to separate your personal life from your work. Yes. And when you're a woman, yes. everyone there's no there's no breaking point. There's yeah. no division at all. It's like you are you are this. I think that's exactly right. And I know you I think you mentioned Woody Allen in the Dolly Alderton podcast and it's a it's a very familiar story i think we obviously you judge people as human beings but their work is their work and um you can't start looking at at it through a prism of how how many old ladies did they visit were they ever unfaithful to their wife uh, it's a separate thing and i mean tolstoy was mm. not a nice man <laughs> and uh mozart you know well we don't know because amadeus is misleading <laughs> but but we just don't know you just don't know i certainly do think that women have been sort of unfairly judged and then you get the kind of whole Jane Austen thing of oh you know dried up spinster in her Mm. um you know doing her needlework or her looking at her little um inch of ivory or whatever I hope that those classifications are disappearing you know you've talked about all the awful experiences you've had of of being someone with a public facing job and having abuse that you know you should no person should ever 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 have to to deal with that but also the vulnerability that you have when you write of you know Mm. what what you are giving away of yourself and whether it's sane and sensible to kind of to build a bit of a a shell and whether even you know Seamus Heaney was performing Yes, I'm sure, I, I'm sure he was up to a point. I think, I think in one sense, you know, there's a sense in which we all do when, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I could be slumped on the sofa at home uh, with my bloke and then we'll, you know, maybe go to see some friends and, you know, suddenly sparkling company. Mm. I'm certainly not like that at home. I think we all do a kind of putting a, putting a you know, good show uh, on. But I, I think probably women have felt more of a pressure to be nice. I think we do feel more Mm. of a pressure to be nice. And I've always had this thing where I suppose in very often in a kind of, you know, if I'm on telly talking about uh, something in the news, I'll probably feel slightly freer to be a bit more aggressive with a bloke than I will with a woman. Mm. If If I'm on with a woman, I probably feel a kind of default thing of, which may be the wrong way around or, you know, an unconventional way around. I probably feel I need to be nicer to the woman than I do to the bloke. Whereas I have never been frightened to argue. I had a very, very argumentative father. I mean, you know, very uh, lovely father, but he was um, sort of intellectually like a kind of juggernaut and and brilliant. And when he died, my um, I bought my mother a fridge magnet that said, when I met Mr. Wright, I didn't realise his first name would be always. You know, <laughs> that was his kind of tone. And sometimes. And um, and I did notice when I was younger, I could, I'd sort of hear myself speaking, think, oh my God, I'm speaking in the same sort of horrendously patronising tone as my father now. And I got a little bit better, or rather probably considered considerably better on that front. But I have never really, I don't know quite why, but I haven't felt that too much, that impetus of I have to tone myself down to be nice to the boys. They've got to like me. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, they didn't particularly like me. I think I, I very often came across when I, as quite spiky and, you know, sort of barbed wire around me and possibly a bit aggressive. 
so in a way, I'm quite pleased that I didn't feel I had to kind of turn myself down because I do know a few women who I would say um, are fiercely intelligent who wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily instantly know how bright they are because yeah. they're because their demeanour is more kind of, you know, nice. So we are now in um, Christina's hall. I should say as well that um, this flat used to be um, a school or part of a school. So I don't know about if this, um, I think the, the sitting room we thought might be a classroom. Do you think this is, I don't know, I don't where know. they had their dinner? Maybe this, maybe or... this was the head teacher's mm. room or something. Who knows? There's lots of, I don't know, I suppose, how much of it is, is new. But there's interesting slopey bits in the ceiling and it feels quite grown up in here. <laughs> and these some seriously grown up books. Ooh, that is a very well found looking copy of oh. um, Roland Barthes. I can't remember a how, single thing about them. I don't even know how them. to pronounce Bart, I think. Bart. I always want to Bart, do a bit of a mad Bart, sort of Bart, Roland Bart, I don't know. Like, like it's a delicious cheese. And like, um, <laughs> if only. <laughs> image, music, text. So this is, all, is this from um, when That's you were studying? from my UEA. I cannot remember a single thing about it. Uh, why, why do you keep it? Uh, because obviously I'm going to read these all again one day. Definitely. And it's... Um, it's a lot of intellectual heft to have that. <laughs> and obviously I want people to think I'm very, very intellectual, yeah. And uh, this has just caught my eye. And I love this because this is definitely, I think, a book that's been displayed. It is book and ornament. I'm going to be very careful with it because it's very fragile. Every Woman's Book of Health and Beauty. It's yeah. got a marvellous, can you describe the cover? I know, I love it's it. Fabulous. I haven't, a friend gave it to me actually. And in 2008, very, very, it's just a beautiful old retro book. And it's got... Um, uh, sort of, you know, advice. On, oh, is that some really good bad uh, diet? So it's health and beauty and so on. Let's think, see so when it was, was published from. In... Let's try to see the date now. It's I'm clearly guessing. very old, but it's not. Not saying. It's sort of funny. I think that it says first edition. Like they're expecting there to be more. It's a slimming with safety, physical culture, and then it's got Ooh. brilliant. Um, now, what would you say? When would you say that was? I. Um... I thought looking at the cover, I would guess. Late forties, early fifties. Yes, 50s. I would have thought that. Yes. So this is exercises I... for slim through middle. I think my dear friend, the poet Maura Dooley, um, gave this to me probably because she knew about my self help obsession. And I'm afraid those books have disappeared because I had to. I ran out of space. But um, as you know from reading my book, I used to be a massive fan of self-help books purely for entertainment i never followed any of the advice in any of them well, i used to have loads of diet books and this is just beautiful so and of course um, Nora, Ephron. Nora Ephron and that is that um that's that is, I, remember I remember nothing, nothing. which is They're kind of my life essays? now but yes and they are brilliant what do you have a favorite um hmm journalism a love story that's a great one about how she fell in love with journalism yeah i love that I don't know if it's my favourite. I can't remember which is my favourite. Needless to say, because it's uh, I'm remembering nothing. Um, oh, and I can see because I, I know you said there's some poetry upstairs. There's a fabulous chunk of poetry. Mm. I see Lorca. I see um, Robbie Burns. Mm. I get really quite do that, but then when people call them Robbie Burns, like, did you know him? Were you around him? <laughs> <laughs> Robert, with life inside you. <laughs> yes. Um, when do you read poetry? Do you know, these days, not nearly enough. Um, I recently, a, a friend of mine who's a poet, who's in my book actually, asked me to look at her the, her latest collection, which isn't published yet, and I read that. I don't read, but I kind of got out of the habit of reading poetry, which is a shame because, again, I think, you know, poetry is kind of balm to the soul, really. And I think it's what we're talking about with comedy, as well, the rhythm of, of language. Absolutely. And the, that it's not writing that's purely content. It's... More than the sum of its parts. Exactly, yeah. You've worked with poetry and with poets in a professional mm. context. Were you? Did you love poetry before that? Or yes, is that something yeah. that you grew to love more in your professional uh, well, life? Well, I did grow to love it more. As someone who studied English, I was obviously always keen on poetry. I always found it very hard to write about poetry. And I still find it very hard to write about poetry. I remember um, many years ago being asked to review some poetry books for the New Statesman. And, and slightly freaking out, I don't... I don't write, I did write when I was running the poetry, I ran the Poetry Society for three years and I did obviously write about poetry then, but I don't, I don't feel very comfortable as a critic of poetry. Not that I can't tell what's good, but I find it, I'm, I don't feel I'm brilliant on form, which is really vital. You really, really need to know your forms. If mm. I were to say, I'm not going to make you do it, but if mm. I would say, recite a poem now, what would be the poem? Well, I'm mad about Keats, actually. I've been reading Keats again recently and 
I, it sort of, I feel like I wish I'd met him because everything, if you kind of keep coming back to your sort of core values, everybody now wants you to talk about what are your core values? And I, I just rather pathetically just keep coming back to the thing in Odin Agrishina and it's beauty and truth, you know, um, that's all you know on earth and all, all you need to know. So, and also negative capability, which I feel we're in uh, rather, you know, lacking at the moment in I our public debate. I don't really think I understand what that means which is maybe my millennial it's about it's from a letter of his and he talks about being in uncertainties mysteries and doubts and it's our ability to cope with mystery and doubt rather than having to be certain about everything all the time i love keats oh yes that that's something i I would very much like to read that i think that sounds a lot like what's really coming up with the poetry yeah let's go to that as well on poetry Okay, up on the mezzanine. I'm very excited about that because I was um, hoping to have a look at the mezzanine. I was going to invite myself over for dinner. <laughs> These are like, beautifully painted bookcases as well. No, they're not painted. They're just oh. like here, Billy, Billy. Oh, no, they're Billy, 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 Billy bookcases, bookcases, which happen to fit perfectly Jeez. in that space by pure coincidence. Proper library. Is this all poetry? Oh, yes. Oh, I love Carver, Raymond Carver's poetry. His, do you know his poem, Late Fragment? Not well. Oh, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. It's incredible. I'll Can read you see it. him I'll here? It. That's it's just like a few lines. Just, just amazing. Right. I can find it. And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. Isn't it beautiful? <sighs> I read that at my sister's funeral. Oh, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, there are many podcasts where people are coming out just hugging everyone. <laughs> Another poet I love who's brilliant with such simplicity, Wendy Cope. Oh, I was um, just, yeah. I was wondering because I, I lit on that book, Two Cures for Love, and I was wondering, yeah, because I'm talking about love and relationships. Maybe mm. Wendy Cope is oh, the master. I, oh, I love Wendy Cope, I really love her. I was thrilled actually. She sent me an email saying how much she loved my book, and I didn't <gasps> even know she'd read it. I was absolutely thrilled. Oh, how Mm. Is she someone you know? You interviewed her. I I did interview her, yes, and I do know her a bit. In the poetry world, I used to. There were a lot of poets I know. I I just love her, and um, particularly (laughs) serious. I just opened up. I'm going to read this out because it's so good and it's so short. Two cures for love. One, don't see him. Don't phone or write a letter. Two, the easy way. Get to know him better. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. It's one loss. The day he moved out was terrible. That evening she went through hell. His absence wasn't a problem, but the corkscrew had gone as well. (laughs) And here's a lovely, lovely one. As sweet. It's all because we're so alike. Twin souls, we two. We smile at the expression, yes, and know it's true. I told the shrink. He gave our love a different name. But he can call it what he likes. It's still the same. I long to see you, hear your voice. My narcissistic object choice. <laughs> is this making you want to spend more time reading poetry? Yes, it is me, definitely. definitely. Yeah. And I don't really know what I think it's perhaps because nothing is ever wasted in a good poem yeah. it's a really really pure form. I exactly. think there's something about the time that you, you give to it. You don't you know sometimes with a novel you do get a bit of time to kind of to warm up and you can maybe not pay attention for half a page and something grabs you and you're in. But with poetry, it's all or nothing. You've got to be there. And perhaps mm. in these times, I keep saying, I'm not, God, that phrase is becoming more and more meaningless the more I say it. <laughs> in these times when everything is terrible and no one cares, we can only ever concentrate for half a second. Mm. It's poetry asks a lot of us, yes. but maybe we should be giving Absolutely it. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. If you've not read these... Um, some. Let's see. I've read. Let's see what I've read. Oh, that's. Oops. Um, so we've obviously got we've got some um, we've got Pride and Prejudice, which, funny enough, I have read, and Wuthering Heights, which I have read. And Did you have you read these editions, or probably? Oh, I might have read this edition of Wuthering Heights. I've had that since I was a child. And so these are. I'm going to describe these are all kind of you know leather bound. If you did a Google image search of kind of you know beautiful old books or you know classy old book library this is what you get i see leather and gilt and in some cases those um beautiful kind of frayed uh 
ribbons. What is that fabric? It's not quite... This, um, I don't think this is leather. Some of these are. Those, oh, pleather. Those were, <laughs> <laughs> Cloth and those, pleather. Those, um, Walter Scott's were my great-grandfather, I think, but I haven't read them. Oh, wow, this, my grandmother gave this to me when I was... Uh, I would have been six or seven. My dear, my dear little Christina, with every good wish and best love from her own Mama May, my grandmother. Wuthering Heights is quite a powerful book for know, a seven-year-old. Is that an, an illustration yes, of the author? Uh, yes. And that's um, that's yeah. Emily Bronte, looking quite... Um... <laughs> on, on Emily Bronte like well <laughs> I don't know about you but that looks like someone collapsing on a chair bloody hell I've written a book <laughs> as if it was drawn the second you finished <laughs> when, can you remember when you read it would, would it have been I, I, then I'm, um, that seems a bit young doesn't it, it um, I'm going to come up because <laughs> my niece are killing me oh yes um, I, I, not probably, I probably read it I was about 12 or something like that and it, it's still I, it's such um, a kind of wild book isn't it it's, mm. it's a kind of scary thing to read in a way because it's so full of fierce and slightly dangerous energy when I this will sound like name but when I interviewed Gordon Brown when I interviewed Emily Bronte yeah when I interviewed Emily Bronte when I interviewed Gordon Brown I really did think Heathcliff actually he did that and also Ted Hughes Ted Hughes mm. definitely had that sort of Heathcliff sense so you met yeah. Ted Hughes who I'm much more excited mm. about than Gordon Brown oh uh, right yeah no I met him quite a few times I suppose I must have met him certainly when I worked at the South Bank and probably when I worked at Faber I worked at Faber for a year when I was 25 or 26 so you know I mean I've never met anyone with such sort of raw magnetism astonishing there's a story that producer dale knows better than i that's um possibly it's a maybe apocryphal anecdote about a woman sitting next to ted hughes at a dinner party and finding him so charismatic that she had to go and be sick <gasps> really really that doesn't surprise me actually <laughs> that doesn't surprise me he i remember getting in a cab with him and with a, a female poet who'd better be nameless and she was practically throwing herself at him he was he had well the word magnetism was kind of made for him i mean i really liked was him it hardly knew him but <laughs> <laughs> no it wasn't but it was not it was not a young woman <laughs> um, uh, in fact i knew her daughter <laughs> yeah astonishing man but he really did live his life in the terrible terrible shadow of sylvia and i think he was always tormented by that and in fact when some of his letters were sold so he died in I think 1998 or maybe 99 um, and I think it must have been in something like 2000 the British Library acquired some of his letters to the critic Keith Sagar and I was summoned in by the Guardian to go and look at those letters and it was really thrilling to be at the British Library and be handling these original Goodness letters me. And, um, and I thought, God, I could just tear them up. I could write all over them. I was amazed. I was on my own with them. And uh, there was a letter. I've not heard of your, your margin scribbler. I know, I know exactly. And, <laughs> um, and there was a letter in which he talked about being on the verge of getting back together with Sylvia Plath before, just before she killed herself. So that was just electrifying. What a I know, it was incredible. Incredible. And obviously that made a news story as well as the, the piece I wrote was, I, I think, a cover. What was the, what paper review. did he use? What was his handwriting like? What was the ink? Um, can't remember what paper he used. And I can't really, I mean, I could read, suppose... unlike mine, I could read the handwriting. <laughs> I think it was probably fountain pen. I, I can't oh, I remember. Oh, I imagine if he'd been invited in and it was sort of, it was entirely insufferable. It imagine it'd be mine. I know. I mean, luckily I've got nothing incriminating because nobody will ever be able to read a word I've written. Huge thanks to Christina. The Art of Not Falling Apart is published by Atlantic Books and out now in paperback. I recommend in the strongest possible terms that absolutely everyone reads it. I've not read a better book about the emotional, troubling and sometimes toxic relationship we can have with the work we do and the impact it has on our identities. But it's also filled with jokes, love, tenderness and the wisest human insight. It's a book that will make us all better and stronger. You can find Christina on social media at QueenChristina underscore on Twitter and at QueenChristinaWriter on Instagram. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me for our frolic in the stacks. 
You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time and I'll leave you with some words from Ian Nesbitt. There is nothing more luxurious than eating while you read, unless it be reading while you eat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.